Welcome to the Team Humans podcast. At Team Humans, we envision a world where every person recognizes themselves in the other, enabling a tomorrow where we can all be human together. I'm Rodney Green, one of the board members of Team Humans, and I'm interviewing fellow human Sami Awad on Human Rights Day. Sami Awad is a nonviolent Palestinian activist who partners with Israelis and Palestinians to work for peace in the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. Sami Awad is the executive director of the Holy Land Trust based in Bethlehem. It seems like every few years, a buildup in tension happens from one side or the other that leads to Hamas or other militant groups in Gaza to fire a few rockets into Israel. Israel responds by bombing Gaza. Thousands of people in Gaza are killed and the Israeli and Palestinian conflict dominates the media for a little while. While these are the main headlines, the daily reality on the ground is one where violence is present continuously, not necessarily in terms of physical violence, which is what makes the news, but in other types of violence, such as daily restrictions on movement, access to resources, land appropriation, fear indoctrination, and so on. People around the world have different perspectives on this conflict and often express very strong feelings. On one side, people argue that Israel is a true example of democracy in the Middle East, and it should have the right to defend itself. People also argue how Jews have been oppressed over the centuries and need a homeland in the region of Palestine to stay safe. In some cases, Jewish people literally have to leave the countries they are living in due to persecution and move to Israel. In addition, when it comes to Israel, people can also have strong religious views about the role of Israel and the way they view uh, God's plan for the world, particularly in how the world ends. On the other side, people argue that the Palestinians have been and are oppressed by Israeli policies, especially in Gaza and the West Bank, where Palestinians live under Israeli military control called occupation. And sometimes uh, needs, something needs to change in order to, to ensure their ability to be free and live in dignity for them and all. Many world leaders, including U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, have denounced the continued rise of, his, of illegal Jewish settlements, as outlined in the U.N. Security Council Resolution 242 from 50 years ago in the West Bank, arguing that these policies and actions oppress Palestinians and undermine peace efforts. We are excited to have Sami Awad on the podcast on Human Rights Day because Sami offers a unique perspective to the, this very complex issue and has worked for human rights and dignity for all in a unique and powerful way in the midst of this conflict. Sami, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rodney. It's wonderful to be with you today. Can you tell us a little more about yourself, your background, and what you do now? Yes. Yeah. What uh, uh, I am a Palestinian, and I come from uh, a family that on my father's side is from Jerusalem, and the family became refugees in 1948. And on my mother's side, my family is from Gaza. So as you're talking about Gaza and mentioning Gaza, I also connect with uncles, aunts, and cousins that still live in Gaza until this day. And you can imagine how worried uh, we get uh, for them every once in a while as tension rises in Gaza. Uh, my, my story is a story of a family that has suffered tremendously from 1948. Uh, my grandfather was killed in the war in Jerusalem. My grandmother and her seven kids uh, became refugees when the Jewish forces took over that neighborhood uh, that they lived in, and they were kicked out from their home. 
And so it was a tragic story. But in that tragedy, what uh, really uh, keeps me motivated in everything I do is my grandmother herself. She passed away a few years ago. And my grandmother was a woman that always insisted that as a family, despite all what we faced and suffered from, we will never seek revenge and retaliation for what happened to us, but we will seek proactively peace and reconciliation with those who have committed the violence and injustice to us. That was the seed that she planted many, many years ago in her children and the grandchildren uh, as well. And so my story has been a story of movement through a family that has always been committed to peace and reconciliation in the midst of continuous suffering and violence. And it has been a story of many ups and downs, many challenges, times where I do give up and say it happened and times where I'm greatly optimistic that things can actually be moving forward. Uh, a big influence in my childhood was an uncle of mine. His name is Mubarak Awad. And Mubarak in the 80s opened a center in Jerusalem called the Palestinian Center for the Study of Nonviolence. And in nonviolence at the age of 12, I began to see that I can actually do something. Uh, nonviolence for me means empowerment. It means that I can stand up for my rights. I can resist uh, those who are violent against me. And I can do that without being violent towards them and actually achieve much better results uh, for me and for them as well. And so from the age of 12, I've been quite active in this movement of nonviolence. Uh, the high point for me was at age 16 when my uncle was arrested by the Israeli government. He was put on trial and he was actually deported because of his work in nonviolence. He was labeled by the Israeli government a threat to the national security of Israel. A nonviolent peace activist was labeled this label. And it was at that age that I committed my life uh, to this work. Uh, all of this led to the establishment of Holy Land Trust as an organization in 1998. And that was during the years of the Oslo peace process. And maybe many of our listeners would remember how maybe even they were celebrating uh, that the Palestinians and Israelis in 1993 came together to make peace with each other uh, in a framework called the two-state solution, which means there will be a Palestinian state next to an Israeli state, and both of us will be living happily ever after, side by side. This is the promise of the Oslo peace process. Palestinians will get about 22% of the territory. Israel will get 78% of the territory. But everybody agreed that this will work for both of us. But the reality on the ground struck me that there was something really wrong in this peace process. And the biggest thing that I felt was that this peace process was actually creating more separation and segregation between Palestinians and Israelis than before the peace process began. You would assume that peace means bringing people together, creating space of reconciliation, uh, dealing with atrocities that happened, apologies and forgiveness and moving forward and building a new future. Uh, but for me, it was quite striking how it became more difficult for Palestinians and Israelis to meet during the years of the peace process than before the peace process began. And so I began to really question the peace process and the policies of settlements, uh, which you talked about even more during the years of the peace process than before the peace process began. And, and so in 1998, a group of us came together and started Whole Land Trust. And, and our slogan is strengthening communities for the future. What we believe as an organization, is that 
at the end of the day, no matter what the politicians agree to or may not agree to, it is up to the people, the communities themselves, the grassroots, to really mobilize themselves, to organize themselves, to engage in real peacemaking. And so our work is not necessarily political. Our work is trying to deeply understand a simple question, uh, which is what makes us not see the humanity of the other? What makes Israelis not see our humanity and our rights to live in dignity and equality in this land and vice versa as well? And so our work is more deep work than what I would call maybe social psychology or psychological work or spiritual work. Uh, that goes beyond borders uh, and goes beyond political agendas and agreements. The, the question for us is how can we, uh, Palestinians, Israelis, Jews, Christians, Muslims, however we want to identify ourselves, truly live in this land in a way where we are recognized as having full equal rights in this land, political, economic, social, human, civil equal rights, in a framework of one state, two states, or ten states, it doesn't really matter if we don't see that we all have rights to live in dignity and respect here. So this is the main focus of what Holland Trust engages in. Wow, thank you so much for that summary. And I want to dig a little bit more into your approach to achieving those goals. But maybe before we do that, would you be able to summarize the Israeli and Palestinian conflict for people who might not know much about it or maybe only heard bits and pieces? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the challenge in this is that everybody has their story of what this conflict is about. <laughs> and so, you know, for, for us as Palestinians and Israelis living in this land, uh, we are peoples who have a deep love to this land, who claim a strong ancestral heritage in this land. And historically, it was actually mixed. You know, I, I actually did the DNA test and I found out that my ancestry is, is Jewish. Uh, then somehow they converted into Christianity and, uh, and we became Palestinian because that was the rule of that time that was over here. And so, like, you really can never know the roots of this. But, right. but one thing I would say to dispute, uh, one, one key f- uh, 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 story or narrative that people talk about is that this is a historic religious conflict that has existed for thousands of years. And, and especially many Christian friends in, in, uh, in the West, in the U.S., uh, who claim that this is a historic conflict that goes back even as, as far as Ishmael and Isaac and the sons of Abraham, that you know some genetic mutation happened to their offspring and every day they wake up and fight each other and go back to bed for thousands of years. Uh, this is not true. This is false theology. Actually, the sons of Abraham reconciled when they buried their fathers, so there is no historic conflict that goes back that long. This land, the Holy Land, is land that has been colonialized, occupied by many groups over over thousands of years. Uh, the strong stay, the weak becomes the subordinate or leave, and then another group takes over, and we've had times of war and times of peace in this land. When I refer to my father's neighborhood in Jerusalem, where he was born and grew up in, Jews, Christians, and Muslims actually lived together uh, in, in peace. Uh, they actually, I would say, lived together better than many of us live now uh, in relationship to our neighborhood, could be from the same ethnic and religious group. They used to go to each other's homes. They used to eat with each other. They used to cook with each other, much more than what we do now. 
And so for me, when I, when I want to summarize this conflict, I, I would summarize it in a way that maybe not many people would, but it is not a historic conflict. It is not a religious conflict. For me, I would say this is a conflict that deals with a deep, deep sense of belonging, but also embedded with this is a deep, deep sense of trauma that the communities of this land have experienced historically and especially, I would say, the trauma that the Jews in Europe experienced over centuries of discrimination and marginalization, and the high point being the Holocaust itself. Uh, a redefinition of Jewish identity, I think, took place in Europe with the suffering of the European Jewish people, where the idea emerged that as Jews, we can only survive if we create a homeland that sustains us and that brings us security. And while there were many options at that time, Palestine ended up being the option. And the Jews from Europe came here, and they came not with this mindset of returning to their Semitic roots to this land as much as I feel it came more from a Western colonialist approach, which is we want to maintain ourselves, we want to sustain ourselves, and the only way to do that is by us being a majority in this land. The Palestinians who were living here at that time, Arabs, Christians, Muslims, were not organized, were not politicized. They had just finished living under the Ottoman uh, occupation, followed by the British uh, mandate over Palestine. And so there was lack of leadership, lack of commitment, lack of engagement. Arab countries nearby were also in their process of becoming their own independent states and looking into their own uh, sort of strategic goals and allies and how they wanted to move their countries forward. And all of this accumulated into a war, which is 1948, uh, that led to the creation of the State of Israel, which was, of course, a big celebration for the Jewish people around the world. Uh, and many Christians celebrated with them because now we started seeing as if this is some prophetic fulfillment that is taking place. On the Palestinian side, it led to the complete opposite of this. We call it the catastrophe. The word Nakba is what we use in Arabic where 80, uh, 70 to 80% of the Palestinian population lost their homes and a great number of other uh, 400 towns and villages were destroyed. And, and since that time, it's been the struggle uh, of power, of fear, of marginalization, of resistance, of using violence, using nonviolence uh, to try to reach some settlement to this conflict. Uh, another major, major date to when we talk about the 1967 uh you know when israel was created in 1948 they had control over about 78 percent of the territory in 1967 israel took over the remaining 22 percent which is the west bank the gaza strip and east jerusalem and again uh, a contested uh, debate took place what do we do and and that debate happened within the Israeli political establishment. Do we annex these newly acquired territories as the the prize of winning the war and make them all part of the state of Israel? Do we negotiate them for peace with the Arab countries? Or the third option is what happened, what's imposing the Israeli military on this newly acquired territory to, to oversee the lives of the people there. And that oversight of the Israeli military, which we call occupation, was was not one that respected human rights and freedom of expression and self-determination and rights to assemble. It was a military system that 
control the lives of the Palestinians. And therefore, you started seeing more resistance and more activism and more calls for uh, ending the occupation, this word that we use, for the sake of establishment of a state. And I sometimes wonder if Israel actually did annex this whole territory and made it all part of the state of Israel, where would we be now in in history? Uh, right. I mean, the whole situation could be completely different. We could probably be talking this podcast about the plants of the Holy Land instead of the politics of the Holy Land. Uh, who knows? Right. Uh, but the reality was that we as Palestinians lived under this military rule. And in 1993, a peace process began uh, called the Oslo Peace Process, which tried to bring some solution to this conflict uh, in a framework called the two-state solution. And then since that time, it's been even more conflict and more challenges uh, with Palestinian resistance, Israeli uh, settlement building, uh, peace work happening, negotiations happening. And, and sadly, until this point, not reaching an agreement that honors all the people in this land, and which only means that violence continues and will continue uh, to exist. And so in the uh, Nakba in 1948, how many people were displaced in that time? Yeah, the estimates are about 700 to 750, sometimes they say close to 800,000, which is about 80% of the non-Jewish residents of the land. So it's the Arab, Palestinian, Christians, and Muslims. Some were displaced outside and some internally within the land itself. Right. I, th- I think that's, that number is important because it gives a sense of the gravity of what happened and the trauma that happened in that land. Um, and, and what's really not been dealt with even up until now, um, you know, 70 years later. Yeah, I mean, we started out at 800,000 refugees. Let's say that's the maximum number. Now the number has gone to 6 million refugees. And so it's still a number that grows. And the peace process kind of completely ignored that main, main issue for many years. And I think part of the failure of the Oslo peace process was that it kind of sidelined or put on the back burner all of these core issues that really mean a lot for the people of this land, the refugees, the status of Jerusalem, the final uh, border issues, security concerns at the deepest level. All of these issues were said, no, these are too complicated. Let's put them towards the end. And I feel they should have probably been addressed initially so that we could know if we could succeed at this piece or not by addressing the most troubling issues first. Right. And, and maybe before we, we move on to some other topics, could you just also talk a little bit about the settlement issue um, and, why that's, and why that's important um, in the peace process? Well, the Oslo peace process was built on the uh, idea of the two-state solution. And then if, if people put bumper stickers on their cars at that time, most of the bumper stickers would say land for peace. Palestinians get land, Israelis get their security, and we will have our peace. The challenge is that the settlements are built on land. And this is land that is inside the West Bank, which is supposed to be part of the Palestinian state. When the peace process began, there were about 200,000 Jewish Israeli settlers living in the occupied territories, which is the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. The challenge that happened was that during the years of the peace process, as they're negotiating 
giving us love for the sake of achieving peace, the Israeli governments, and it didn't actually matter if it was a labor or could engaged in a continuous policy of confiscating land, building more settlements, expanding existing settlements, and moving settlers into these settlements, where the idea of a two-state solution slowly became more and more impossible to achieve because now land is gone. The connection of the West Bank from the north to the south is challenged by settlement buildings uh, and, of course, the separation between the West Bank and Gaza itself. So, it, you know, we use the, the, the example of a Swiss cheese model where you have these little enclaves of Palestinian high-population areas and Israel controls all of the cheese uh, around it where they have the settlements and the roads that the settler use and the land that is potentially to expand for existing or new settlements. So as a political uh, piece, uh, many people are saying that the two-state solution is no longer viable and we need to begin looking for others. And the main reason is because of the settlements that exist in the occupied territories. And so the settlements, are they under military occupation? I mean, are they governed by the military in the same way that Palestinians are? No, no. Uh, the, the settlements are... Uh, completely independent and uh, have nothing to do with the Palestinian community. As Palestinians, we can't even go into the settlements without having special permissions, even though the settlements exist all around us. These settlements are for Jews only, for Israeli Jews only who live in them, uh, and they have the full civil rights that are granted to them by the Israeli government and the uh, legal system in Israel. They don't have to submit to the Israeli military courts. They don't have to abide. They're not even asked to even be part of any Israeli military establishment. They are fully independent, fully part of the civil uh, base and democratic base of Israeli society itself, including even uh, cabinet members uh, who are settlers who are part of the Israeli cabinet itself. So they are not in any way connected to how we as Palestinians live in the West Bank. Right. I think that's important to, to make that distinction and um, that the, the Jewish settlements have different rights under, than under Palestinians under the occupation and, and the military mm -hmm. governance there. Um, so I think this gives us a, a great overview. I know there's, there's entire books written on this subject. And yeah. <laughs> so it gives us a great overview of, of kind of where the conflict started and, and the different kind of points in time that, that influenced the, the development of the conflict and where it is today. So I'd like to ask you now, as, as part of Holy Land Trust, what is your approach to addressing this conflict? And um, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, our approach is sort of a three-tier approach to trying to address the situation here. And this comes from our 20 years of experience that we have learned and reviewed and accumulated uh, from our direct personal experience in this. One thing we are committed to, and we believe that nonviolence is the core of dealing with the power imbalance and the structures of occupation. We are, as an organization, fully committed to training, engaging, building strategies, promoting uh, work that is in nonviolent activism, nonviolent resistance, and nonviolent communication. We do not in any way uh, endorse 
and we do not even support uh, or even give legitimacy to any violence that is used by any side thinking that through violence goals can be achieved. And in this, we also do joint work. Joint Israeli-Palestinian work, joint Israeli-Palestinian international work of nonviolence uh, for us to come together because what we believe at the end of the day that these structures of oppression, uh, just like Dr. King would say, uh, are need to be, uh, the liberation needs to happen for the oppressed and the oppressor from the oppression. And, and so one of the key, for example, aspects of our work together is the uh, Sumud uh, Freedom Camp and, or the Sumud Movement itself, where Israelis, Palestinians, uh, several organizations have come together to engage in direct nonviolent action, and especially in areas that are being threatened to be confiscated, lands of Palestinians threatened to be confiscated by settlers themselves. So to have Palestinians and Israelis not just come together for a protest uh, and then go back home, but actually live together, create community together. This is the uniqueness of what Sumud is, nonviolent activism and community building to create the model that we could actually live together in peace. Like we are the same. We can do this uh, in our resistance and in our uh, resiliency, which is what Sumud means. Uh, a second aspect of our work, in addition to nonviolence, is the work of understanding uh, the effects of trauma on our communities. And this is not necessarily the personal trauma experience of like PDSD, but it's more to understand the collective uh, trauma, the narrative trauma, the inherited trauma. What shapes me from my past is the trauma of my father, the trauma of my religion, the trauma of my community. And that shapes my identity. And in that it shapes how I view others as well. And that's what I was talking about earlier, uh, that the healing work was missing during the years of the peace process. We need to heal ourselves from the trauma. A lot of the peace processes that we engage in are actually motivated by fear of the other. And I want to make peace with you because I'm afraid of you, not because I respect you and honor you and I'm, I'm ready to recognize your humanity. Uh, this is where the separation came from during the years of the peace process. Uh, demographically, we are afraid of you. Socially, we're afraid of you. Economically, we're afraid of you. But we want to make an agreement where you stop being violent towards us. And that's, that's what we're going to call peace. For us, if we don't address the trauma of our communities that we have inherited from our ancestors, I do not believe we will ever achieve a real sense of peace and justice for all in this land. A third approach that we have is what we call transformation, which is how can we build leadership for the future that goes through their own journeys as individuals where there is healing and transformation. And by this, I mean, we need leaders that are visionary. We need leaders that are ready to engage in making the impossible possible. Uh, most Israelis and Palestinians will say peace is impossible. We want leaders to say, no, peace, justice, equality in this land is very possible. And the way leaders are able to present that possibility is by them going through a process where they begin to understand that it is the vision of the future that needs to motivate them in the present, not the experience of the past. And this is an intensive training that we engage in called nonlinear thinking that leaders uh, take. And, and when we say leaders, we mean people who do have influence. It could be university uh, teachers, it could be social workers, it could be activists, religious leaders, or politicians. And it's quite an intensive training that they go through for them to be able to create breakthroughs 
uh, for the future and peace uh, in this land. Uh, so our work is, is more divided into the personal transformation and healing work using nonviolence to address the structures of power. And ultimately, as I said before, it is not a politically motivated goal. It is about we have nations in this land that need to be honored and learn to live in respect and trust with each other. And this is ultimately what we seek to achieve. It's, in, it's really incredible work and really deep work that you're describing as well. And one of the, I mean, it's all very impressive and exciting and hopeful. Um, but one thing that really strikes me as you share is the, the really the embodiment or modeling of life together, like in the Samud movement, where you're not just talking about how to live together or to address these issues, but actually doing it and doing it in a way that protects people's rights and um, addresses some of the power structures and, and promotes dignity. It's really incredible work. Yeah. And believe me, humans are incredible. <laughs> people are incredible. People are amazing. If, if they are able to address and just recognize, not even address, just to recognize that, Oh, in this moment I'm being motivated by fear instead of allowing it to take me on, I want to say, okay, can I have, I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to suppress it, but are there other options for me to engage in? How can I really build trust? How can I gain respect from others? And, and once we begin to really engage in this work, that is not just about how do I build walls around myself, but begin to open up to others and taking it in caution. I mean, we're not asking people to jump off clips here, but to do it in caution where they can really begin to see that, wow, I could actually connect with another human being, even if they're different than me. And my perceptions and my assumptions of who they are were misplaced because this is what my leaders told me, that I'm supposed to fear them. But in reality, we could actually get along very well with each other. So, yeah, this is what Sumud is for us and, and almost all the work that we do. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for modeling this work and for, for leading it and for empowering so many different people from different backgrounds to be involved. Um, it's, it's really inspiring. And I, I have a few other questions because I think whenever this topic comes up, I think a, a lot of people have questions about uh, different aspects of this conflict. And one of mm -hmm. these is... Um, you know, what would you say to Israelis or others um, in other nations who really feel strongly about supporting Israel politically? Like, what would you say to, to them? Well, I mean, the first question I would ask is, is why? And it's not why to challenge them, but what is the motivation behind your support uh, for Israel? And, and different people have different motivations. And I think we need to be able to understand this so that we can address this. If people are supporting Israel, for example, because of fear of Islam and this rise in Islamophobia, then let us address the issue of Islamophobia. It's not about denying support for Israel, but let's not put Israel on the front lines of fighting a battle that they are probably not fighting and maybe not interested in fighting because we come from a certain Judeo-Christian background and Islam is our enemy. That means we need to support those who are fighting Islam. This is false theology. This is false politics. It doesn't benefit anybody. And, and so, or if people are supporting Israel out of theology, you know, many Christians around the world support Israel and they see Israel as a fulfillment of prophecy 
and that this is what's going to allow for the second coming uh, to happen of Christ. Uh, and this theology is being challenged, it is disputed, it is being argued within theological circles. We are actively involved in these discussions. We actually hold a conference every two years called Christ at the Checkpoint, where we invite Christian Zionists, Messianic Jews, evangelical Christian leaders, Palestinian Christians to come together to discuss what is a theology of peace that we can agree on. So supporting Israel, if it's meant only for demonizing others, then I would challenge that support. If supporting Israel is meant for Israel to become a model of democracy, of human rights, of respect, of equality, uh, as a Palestinian Christian, for example, I would say that it is my dream to see Judaism flourish in this land. I'm not at all. I actually want to support a Jewish presence, a manifestation of Judaism here, because Judaism is a very rich and beautiful religion. But if we are just doing this to build fortresses and castles and military uh, regimes to protect us from others, then I think this is something that we need to question uh, as well. So supporting Israel is a choice that people can make. At the same time, let us address why this support is for Israel, strategic, economic, political, theological, and how can we make it in a way where through the support, we could also say we also support the Palestinians, we support the Palestinian rights to self-determination, to existence. We support all countries in the world that want to live in freedom and democracy and human rights because supporting one does not in any way negate us from supporting the other side as well. That's right. Wow. Thank you for that. That's helpful way to kind of unpack that question and to really continue to support dignity and, and human rights for, for everyone. And, and I, so, I would say for yeah. me as well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Palestinian, I'm an American citizen. Supporting for, as, as an American citizen, supporting my government doesn't mean that I blindly, you know, put my stamp on, of approval or anything they do. Uh, I think part of it is to be clear, to be prophetic, to be able to say you're doing wrong, uh, you have to change your policy, and, and I think one of the challenges we have now, and which is growing, is that many are afraid that criticism of Israel means anti-Semitism or criticism of Judaism. And this is something that we need to challenge. Israel is a political entity that engages as any other political country and as, as any institution of politics. Sometimes they make mistakes, sometimes they achieve things. And so let us praise the achievements when they happen, but let us be critical of the mistakes when they take place, that in them, uh, there is violence in them. So as an American citizen or a Palestinian, as a Palestinian, I support my, my leadership, but when my leadership does something wrong, I stand up and say, no, you shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. This is a legitimate right that all of us have. It doesn't mean I become anti-Muslim if I criticize Saudi Arabia, for example, or anti-Christian if I criticize uh, Britain. Independent countries need to be treated as political entities, and we cannot keep mixing faith and politics uh, together to, to justify the continuous use of violence. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for that. that that's helpful to differentiate between policies and which policies are uh, supportive of dignity and life for all and which policies are oppressive and to be able to challenge those. I think that's a really helpful distinction. 
And um, what would you say, I mean, a lot of people when talking about this topic are also concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and the United States. You know, how would, how would you, what would you say to that issue and, and for people that are concerned about that as well? Yeah, uh, for me, it is very disturbing to see the rise of anti-Semitism, to see Islamophobia, to see violence against minority groups continue rise and continue to rise throughout the world. In the context of anti-Semitism, I for one and many others are fully against uh, those who are anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, who are racist, who are neo-Nazis, who, who just want violence against our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, and, and for me, it is very, I always make this very clear that our struggle again and again as Palestinians is not in any way linked to anti-Semitism and the growing movement of anti-Semitism around the world. Many people might use and abuse our struggle to achieve their false and violent ideological agendas. This is something that we refuse to be engaged in, we refuse to connect with. For me, our struggle as Palestinians is nothing to do with Judaism. It's our own struggle to end occupation and to have self-determination and to be a free society and community. Uh, I refute any person that links my struggle by labeling me anti-Semitic or connecting me with groups that are anti-Semitic. Uh, but this is, again, when you talk about distinction, this is a very important distinction that we need to make. We all need to address anti-Semitism together. Israeli policies towards the Palestinians are violent. The struggle against the, such policies that are violent doesn't mean that those who struggle against them are anti-Semitic. Anti Criticizing Israel doesn't mean being anti-Semitic again. If there's anti-Semitism, it is very well defined and very clear, and we all need to work together to stop it. All right, that's, that's very helpful. Um, so how can people support peace in this region? Um, what, would, what advice would you have for, for people really anywhere in the world? Well, I think for many people, I would encourage them to come and see. Uh, you know, many people listen to media or read a book or two, and they have their own perception of this conflict. They listen to a, a sermon, they listen to a lecture, and all of a sudden, they feel they, the aha moment. They got it. The situation here is much more complex, and the situation here is much more beautiful than what they think. There are amazing organizations that are doing peace work and justice work and nonviolence work on both sides uh, of the equation. And there are people on both sides as well. People need to come and see the occupation. What, what does it mean for us as Palestinians to live under occupation? Uh, you know, these words that people hear, and they, they, they need to come and sense them in the fullness of them. As people come here and see, our goal is not that they become one-sided like to become pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli, or pro-Israeli, anti-Palestinian. We want people to become more engaging in pro-peace and pro-justice for both sides and to address those voices that are anti-peace and anti-justice on all levels as well. And so for me, what I would encourage people to engage in is to really talk about human rights, civil rights, equal rights, political rights of the people who live in the Holy Land. Jews, Christians, Muslims, Palestinians, Israelis, no matter how we identify ourselves, 
we all have a heritage here, we all have a future here, and we need to find the solution that is the right solution for us, not imposed on us, but we need the support of the international community to support us, to support local work here, and to put the necessary pressure on either side when they begin to violate human rights uh, of the other. Uh, so for me, my, my invitation is to broaden your horizon, broaden your mind. There are people, human beings that live in this land, and we are all suffering at one level or the other. Even if you're the oppressor, you are suffering from continuous fear. If you're the oppressed, you're suffering from continuous violence. We cannot in any way justify the continuation of violence and fear in this land, and the world can help us make this happen. Thank you for that. I think that's a great um, charge for us who are interested in peace and for, for the flourishing of, of human beings. And I can speak to this as well because I did come and see uh, a few years ago and I was able to see occupation. I was able to talk to Israelis and Palestinians in different parts of um, uh, the West Bank and Bethlehem as well as in Galilee and um, it, it definitely is helpful to be there and to see it for yourself and to have the conversations yourself. And so that'd be something I'd also recommend for people who are interested in peace and want to know more is to um, connect with organizations like Holy, Ch uh, Holy Land Trust and to, and to make a visit and to, and to really have a posture of learning. Yeah, thank you for that, Rodney. And, and I invite you to come again as well. Maybe you could organize a group and come over. <laughs> That's right. Maybe I can. That would be a good Team Humans activity for us. Yeah, exactly. Um, for those who are just interested in maybe just next steps, what resources would you recommend for people wanting to learn more? Well, again, I would say the first thing is to come. Uh, the second thing, there, are, as you said before, there are many, many books written on this conflict. And and so I would encourage people just to, to gain a selection of books written by Israeli or Palestinian authors. Well, let me say and Palestinian authors, not just to get a one-sided view. And, and books, for the most part, as we know very well, are the, the best attempts of people to understand the situation. It doesn't mean that this is it. So to broaden the horizon, to listen to media with an eye of, uh, you know, just questioning what is behind the media and and i would i would say to always ask what is the context of what is happening not just the content you know we we sometimes see an action and we determine everything by this action if rockets are flying from gaza and it's not about justifying them but to ask why is that do i just listen to the media where it's just about people who hate israelis and want to kill them or is there more to it uh, when israeli commits acts of violence against palestinians to ask what is behind it is it just a demonizing or is there something more to it so i think the best advice is just to open up yourself in questions meet people in your community there are jews living in your community there are muslims living in your community probably there are palestinians living in your community as well meet them hear their stories understand what they're about and be humble in knowing that yeah i mean people might not have the answers you know if we had the answers we wouldn't be having this conversation and we've been doing this work for many many years we're all on our journey and we're doing the best we can. And uh, yeah, let's just, you know, let's just humbly look into this conflict and then support grassroots movement, support work that is happening here. Uh, don't 
become you know one-sided spokesperson of one group against the other we have enough of those we don't need more of them uh, but become an agent of peace and justice in this land and human rights it can happen it, it, i mean it's very simple it can happen i will keep saying this you know we're not genetically born hating each other we can fix all of this and the world can help us make it happen that's a beautiful vision and, and really does connect with our vision here at Team Humans as well. Um, maybe one other thing I would add for those who are interested in learning more is um, Sami Awad was involved in producing a documentary uh, called Little Town of Bethlehem. Is that still available for people who might want to uh, engage through a film like that? Yes, I, I think it's actually available free online now. Uh, so people can just Google Little Town of Bethlehem, put my name, S-A-M-I-A-W-A-D, so they don't get the Christmas song, and they will <laughs> they will find it. <laughs> That's great. I'll put a link to it as well um, on the Team Humans uh, blog and podcast notes so that people can, can view the documentary there as well. Um, thank you again, uh, Sami, for speaking with us today, for sharing your work, your heart, and your vision for what's possible for peace in uh, the Holy Land. And I think you've given us a great charge and a great model of what's possible, not only in Israel and Palestine and the occupied territories, but also in our communities around the world where there is segregation and violence against uh, other human beings. And I think you're an inspiration to us all working for peace around the world. Uh, thank you, Rodney. And thank you for all the work you're doing. The, we're, all, we're all in this together, that's for sure. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you all for listening.